Praise God. Well, after a short time off in the epistle of James, we will be turning to the epistle of James as we enter the final chapter, James chapter 5. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in James, right? Two weeks of vacation and then one before. But you know what? We're about to finish up this epistle and I think um, I think the epistle still has much to speak to us. When we last left off in James, we were in James chapter 4, and we closed out where James was really discussing the characteristics of worldliness. As a matter of fact, if we break down James chapter 4, you might remember this uh, from the last time we did it. We saw in verses 1 through 1 and 2 the cause of worldliness. And in verses 3 through 6, we saw the consequence of worldliness. In verses 7 through 10, we saw the cure for worldliness. And we ended up in verses 11 through 17 where we discussed the, the characteristics of worldliness. And James was talking about worldliness that was pervading the church. By the way, I don't think there's a more appropriate time to talk about worldliness that is pervading the church. The church seems to be saturated with worldly doctrines more and more. And more and more churches are moving more and more to the idea of let's appease the masses. Let's, let's feed the goats. Let's appease the goats at the expense of the sheep. Right? And it's our mission here and our purpose here is that we're going to feed the sheep. And let the sheep go out and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be going into James chapter 5. And our text in James chapter 5, if we were going to break it down, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But if we were going to break it down today, our text is really divided in two parts. In the first part, verses 1 through 6, James is going to talk about riches. And he's going to talk specifically to those who are wealthy who were in the church, but more than likely were not believers. Now, what do I mean by that? They may have thought themselves to be believers. They may have professed themselves of believers. But as we're going to see in verses 1 through 6, the fruit and the characteristic of them is not that of a believer. So the first half, we're going to look at James condemnation, his rebuke of the rich. And we're going to see why he rebukes the rich in the way that he does. But there's a glorious second part. And we're going to look at that second part today. He will turn his attention from a rebuke to an encouragement. And it's an encouragement of those persecuted believers. Remember, when we set out to study the epistle of James, right? He is writing to believers. He's writing to the church, and they are dispersed. They were forced out of Jerusalem. So they're all over the place. And he's writing a letter to encourage them. And so he is going to write to them, those weary, persecuted, downtrodden believers, and he's going to give them a glorious word of encouragement. And that word of encouragement is, be patient, be steadfast, 
Be faithful. Why? Because the return of the Lord is at hand. Now, I'm not even about to make a parallel to those believers because we in this nation are yet to be persecuted full speed. We in this nation can still come to church on Sunday without the fear of reprisal. We can still enter into this place and we don't have to worry about police or FBI or any others coming in and arresting us for worship just like they do in China, just like they do in other communist nations, being sent to re-education camps. Those days are yet to come. So we still have that liberty. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if your heart beats for righteousness, if you want the holiness of God, if you're tired of seeing the name of God, the name of Christ being blasphemed and defamed, well, then I'll tell you what, there's a glorious hope. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is at hand. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. I also want to remind you, as we studied the epistle of James, that this book is a book about faith. We said this at the very beginning, and I want to reiterate this. It is a book about faith. And James says that that faith is revealed through various tests. Remember James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. For when he has been approved by God, he shall receive the, the crown of righteousness which the Lord shall give him. There are various tests that we have seen throughout this epistle. And we are going to see another test. Persevere. Hold on to Christ. If there's anything that I could tell a believer today, I, I had this opportunity, uh, and Barbara and I just came back from, from Lexi's wedding, and while I was at the wedding, I had an opportunity to talk to the groom's brother, and he sounds like he's a new Christian, and he was asking me, you know, questions, and he was saying, well, what should I do? I, I want to grow deeper in my faith. I want to I know Christ more. What shall I do? And I said, listen, brother, there's three things you must get right. Number one, you must have a serious study and meditation and contemplation of the Word of God, for therein does God speak through His Word. I said the second most important thing to do is to get a time alone, away from everybody. I said, get time alone in prayer with the Lord. Don't default to, I pray to the Lord in my car. Get a designated time alone with God. And I said, that time for me is the early mornings. And it is in the early mornings when I can feel and I can experience the presence of God. And God will speak through his word in those times. So you need time for prayer, concentrated prayer. And I said, brother, don't forsake the assembling of the brethren. Use your spiritual gifts. Come into the church. If you put these three disciplines together, you will grow in your faith of Jesus Christ. And I said, there's one more thing. Hang in. Persevere. Though everybody might laugh at you, though everybody might say you're crazy, though everybody might say you're a fanatic, you're a nut, 
Hang in. Hold to Christ. Don't let go. Don't be swayed by the culture. Don't be swayed by anything else. And church, I tell you the very same thing today. You've heard me say this time and time before, I have never met a rock-solid, strong, spiritual man of God who forsakes the study of Scripture, who forsakes prayer, who forsakes church. You know why I haven't met them? Because they don't exist. That's why. We, there's a message for us, need to encourage our hearts to press on into greater depths in Christ. And this is exactly what James is going to do here in the second part of chapter 5. Let's look at our text and begin here in James 5, verse 1. The Word of God reads, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of your laborers who mowed your fields and which was, has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did, not, who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Boy, is that encouragement or what? <laughs> that is a strong way to begin. Here we see in part one, James addresses the wealthy unbelievers. And we see here that the Bible itself does not condemn, by the way, I want to put this out here. The Bible does not condemn wealth. It does not condemn wealth. But the issue is, what do you do with that wealth? And how do you achieve that wealth? If we look in the church, there are varying people of various economic positions. Some have more than others. That's the case everywhere. The Bible doesn't condemn the ones that have more, you know, and it doesn't exalt the ones that have less. Every man is determined by his faithfulness to Christ. But what we see James is doing here is James is speaking to a group of people who their hope and their confidence and their absolute trust is in what they have is in their riches. And notice what he says to these rich people. James says they're guilty of several things. Number one, they have trusted exclusively, exclusively in their riches and not in God. We see that in verses 102, uh, 1 and 2. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon me, Upon you, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. 
Their trust is there, and that trust is going to betray them. The second thing, they have defrauded their workers of their pay. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the Lord of the years of the Lord of Sabbath. That is the, the commander of the armies of the Lord. We can see right away here, these are people who are not only hoarding, hoarding but they're also defrauding. They're making wealth by defrauding others, by not paying out their wages. And there's another thing. They have taken advantage of the righteous poor, perhaps, perhaps even to the point of death. Verse 5, you have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And so they've taken advantage of the poor. Now, if you look at this, these are not the fruits of righteousness of believers. But one thing that they can do, and one thing many wealthy people can do, is they can influence their way into a church. They can influence their way. Now, they may have been good Jewish people at the time. They may have been people of renown in their society. But somehow they had morphed their way inside the church, and it had reached James and James is now issuing a stern rebuke, a stern rebuke to them. As a matter of fact, you could see right here from the text that they have ignored the command of the Lord found in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things shall be added unto you. What is the priority of the rich, of the middle class, of the poor believer. The priority is always the same. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Your business, your job, your career is never, never, never to take the priority of the Lord in your life. As a matter of fact, if there's anything that takes the priority of the Lord, if there's something more important to you than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the preeminence of Christ in your life, that is a sin. And that sin is called idolatry. Idolatry is anything else that we worship in place of Christ. Now look, I understand we live in a day and age and some of you have jobs that you have to work on a Sunday or whatever, but your Christianity is not a Sunday. Your Christianity is Monday through Sunday. Your Christianity is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single day of the month every single month of the year. And if you are in Christ, Christ is your affection. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Their riches had become their trust. Their riches had become their God. And this was their idolatry. 
And let us fear, church, let us seriously fear that we would become like them. Because I'll tell you what, it's not an overt thing. They don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to trust my riches, I'm going to love my riches. No, it's a subtle thing where you begin to forget about the mercies of God and the delivering powers of God. And instead, you fret, you worry, you concern yourself with your bank account, with your job, whatever it is, whatever it is you're putting in in place of Jesus Christ. We live in such a day and age of such change and such fear that many times it just lends itself that I need something tangible that I could hold on to, something tangible that I could trust. This morning in Sunday school was teaching through Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we talked about the faith of Abraham. And Paul writes of the faith of Abraham, right? That Abraham believed in a God who calls into being that which does not exist and even can raise the dead. He can even raise the dead. And the challenge that I put before the Sunday school was this, is how many times in our life we're faced with circumstances where we can't see how it's going to work out and we begin to fret and we begin to worry. But it is at that time when our faith must be put in the person and in the plan and in the purpose of God and believe God in such a matter that our God has the ability to call into existence that which does not exist. We don't see the answer. And what I put before the class is I said, I'm willing to bet if you look back on your most intense challenges that you've gone through in your life, you will see that God has used those circumstances to build faith in you. And you could look back now and you could say, wow, I remember when I went through that and I don't understand how I was going to be delivered with that. But now I look back and I see the hand of God had he brought deliverance in my life. How many of you could say an amen to that? Amen, Amen, right? Amen. And so the most important thing is not how much money is in the bank. The most important thing is, 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 is not your career. The most important thing isn't to say, oh, I want to make X amount of money before I reach X age. The most important thing to the believer is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. And that has to be the premium. Amen. That has to be the zenith of your faith. For those that James is rebuking here in verses 1 through 6, it wasn't. They had other priorities. And they put those priorities in front of the Lord. You know, the other thing I think as we look at our nation today and we see the chaos that's going in the nation, let me give you a warning on this. Many are putting their faith and confidence in politics. I want to tell you something right now. There's not another president who's going to fix this. All right? I don't care who. The problem in America is a sin problem. It's not a political problem. The problem in America is we've already murdered 61 million babies. That's a big time problem. And the wrath of God, make no mistake, 
is stirring about that. The problem in America is that we're inventing new immoralities every single day. And there is no political party that's going to fix that. Don't buy into it. Oh, you can vote. I'm not telling you to vote. You do what you want with your vote. But I'm going to tell you what. The only hope for America is if America repents. And if America repents and turns to Christ. But I'm going to tell you, there's another problem in America. And that second problem is the church. Because the church is declining and degenerating just like the society. Now, when I use the term church, I use a broad term church. You hear all these guys preaching about, oh, you know, look at the numbers. Mainstream denominations are falling, they're falling, they're falling. Yes, they're falling. You know who those are? Those are all the goats that are leaving the church. And there's no doubt about that. Right? So there is a church out there. There is a perceived church. And that perceived church is already corroding. But the seeds of sin are finding their way into the mainstream church. And the church needs to repent. The church needs to come back to the fundamentals of the gospel. The church needs to come back to the truth of the Word of God. It seems like today so many are getting smarter than the Word of God. And every day there's a new YouTube video with a new disposition on an old theology and why it's not true and everything else. Listen, do me a favor. Don't get discipled by YouTube, please. I think I'm going to faint if somebody comes up to me. I saw a YouTube video. This guy said this, that. It's like, oh, man, I don't want to answer this anymore. How about this? How about you pick up the Bible and you spend your time in the Word of God, right? There's a novel concept. And then when you have some time, sit down and and pray and speak to the Lord and share your heart. And oh, by the way, as God reveals sin in your life, repent of that sin, confess that sin, make yourself right with God. And forget the YouTube and forget all the other different stuff. See, a lot of this was even going on in the early church as well. And as long as it is day, we're always going to have those that are believers in Jesus Christ, and we're going to have those that are pretenders in Jesus Christ. And the issue for us is which one are we? Which one are we? And I'll give you a clue. Your heart will tell you which one you are. How? Because your passions will be directed. Do you hunger and thirst for Christ? Man, that is the litmus test. Do you hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ? Does Christ occupy your mind? Do you have a God consciousness? Is it laborious to spend time alone with the Lord in prayer and in the study of the Word of God? Is it laborious to come to church? Or do you enjoy, do you say, Oh, good Lord, I got up at five this morning. I'm going to be all alone with the Lord. And the Lord is going to speak. And and I'm going to open His Word. And God's going to speak to me through His Word. Which one is it? Many times people say, Pastor, I have a hard time reading the Bible. I have a hard time doing this. I say, well, are you reading the Bible or are you studying the Bible? 
How about this? How about you focus on one verse and you get that one verse right? Spend some time alone with God. Have you, have you gone to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm not getting it. I feel dry, oh God. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your spirit. Open up the word of God to me, oh God. Do you do that? Man, we moan and cry about so many other different things. Do we moan and cry when we're missing the Lord Jesus? I'm a man of habits. I could eat the same sandwich every day for seven weeks. My wife will say to me, man, you don't change for nothing. But I'm a man of habits, and I have my routines. And when that routine gets broken, things change. So obviously, last week we were on vacation. My whole system got broken. I just felt, kind of felt out of step and this past week with all the busyness that we had this week and we had to go up and and do the wedding the same thing happened but oh I'll tell you what when I got up this morning and it was still dark outside <laughs> and there wasn't a pin drop in that house I got alone with the Lord it was like, I'm back. I'm back. And the word of God spoke. And the spirit of God spoke to my heart. And come to church and to see you beautiful people. And to come here and have Sunday school. And to be able to worship the Lord. It's back. It's where I belong. Do you miss Christ that way? Do you miss your intimacy with him? That way. Listen, if you do, come back. Come back. What could be better? What could be better? Sorry, I got off track there. Where were we? We were talking about don't place your confidence in politics, right? Let's just leave it there. Don't place your confidence in politics. You know, if we look at the Scripture, there's been wealthy people in the Scripture that God has used to bless others. Have there not? Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy man until he converted to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it was said of Nicodemus before he converted to Jesus Christ, which is after the resurrection, that he was one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. He was the teacher of the teachers. Nicodemus, tradition, church tradition says, got saved. He was stripped of his position as a Pharisee. Him and his daughter were kicked out of Jerusalem. They lived in the Judean wilderness, where Nicodemus went into abstract poverty. And then his daughter came to Jerusalem to beg for money among the people he used to minister to, and when they found out that she was Nicodemus's daughter, they kicked her out too. And it is written of Nicodemus that he died penniless and broke in the Judean wilderness. But while he was wealthy, he was a blessing to the ministry of the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. 
Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb to Jesus to be buried in, just as the prophets had declared. You see, when we have much, when God has given us much, when we have been entrusted with much, with it comes great responsibility. And to give to the church and to minister to others who have needs. Not to ignore them, not to be cold. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know a brother or sister has a need and you know that you can meet that need and you choose to ignore that need, well, that's, that's, that's sinful. That's not how the church is supposed to work. Jesus said money in Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, and mammon is wealth, riches. He when Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, says this, But to those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it is the love of money, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pain. The believers who trust and have confidence, their confidence must be in God. And it must be in God's sustaining and delivering power. Those blessed by God with material wealth are also to be rich in faith. Rich in faith. We're not to be those that hoard, as James is rebuking these, that hoard and trust entirely in their riches. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 18, says this. Notice what he says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So James comes out swinging, does he not? But oh my goodness, I told you there's a part one and there's a part two. And now we look at part two as James is waiting for the coming day of the Lord. Verse 7, James writes, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. Here in verses 7 to 12, James moves on to encourage the long-suffering believers in their faith. The message of this text is patience. Patience, laboring patiently, waiting patiently for the Lord to come. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope I get an amen on this one, but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the hope, is it not? Is the hope of every believer. I say even now, come Lord Jesus. What could be better than that? 
Come, Lord Jesus. And it has been the hope of believers ever since the Lord ascended into heaven. The Old Testament and the New Testament speak about the coming of the Lord Jesus. That word for coming is the Greek word perusia. And that word is a technical term. It, it, it denotes especially the arrival, and, and it really speaks to the arrival of the owner, the arrival of the owner who alone can deal with a situation. Perugia is a technical term, and it really refers to the visitation of royalty. You know, you're going to have a royal visit. The king, the queen is coming. They're going to have a royal visit. Isn't it appropriate that that word perugia is the word that is used in this, in this text here for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord? Now, he's writing this to those who are suffering, those who are being persecuted in the faith. As we mentioned earlier in James, there was a time period when they forced all of the Jewish people to leave Jerusalem and go into what is called the diaspora or the dispersion, and they went out in all the other different areas. And to those who are suffering, those who are laboring diligently for the kingdom of God, what is James' advice to them? Be patient, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are content with this world don't miss, don't yearn for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Scripture. 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7 in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James calls for patience. And the word that he uses there for patience is not desperate waiting. It's not waiting because you can't do anything. As a matter of fact, the word patience that he used there means to, to persevere, to endure, to continue to press on. The, the literal sense of the word means it's extending a long time. You're going to endure. You're going to push on. You're going to continue to go a long time. And by the way, Jesus didn't return in their time frame. That's 2,000 years ago. And so many of us find ourselves in the same situation that we have to endure, we have to push on, we have to continue to move forward, and we don't stop until the Lord comes. Everybody knows there's no retirement in the kingdom of God, right? And you know there's no social security in the kingdom of God too, right? That each and every one of us, until our final breath, 
are to give account to the Lord Jesus Christ and are to declare the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ right up until our death. And our death is graduation day. And our death is going to be painless. And our death is going to be the closing of one eye here and the opening of another eye there. And to be in the presence of the Lord. So we're to press on. We're to have a sense of patience. We're to continue to move. And I'll tell you what, that patience that he encourages those believers with is this. The next thing on God's holy calendar is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a personal thing. You don't have to argue with me after church. It's just my personal opinion, okay? I really do believe that the return of Jesus Christ is eminent. I really, really, really do. You might say, how eminent? Well, I'm never going to put a, a, a year or a date or a time frame. I'm never going to do that. But I'm telling you, it's eminent. I mean, and so we have to live our life in the expectation, in the, not only in the, listen, not only in the expectation of the return of the Lord of Jesus Christ, but are we prepared? Are we ready? Have we labored? Key word, labored. For the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. You know, I always have that saying. I say it quite often. I'm not going to stand before the Lord with empty pockets. And what I mean by that, and I know it doesn't work this way, but what I mean by that is if I were to stand before the Lord and the Lord say, okay, Mark, what have you done for the kingdom of God? Now, I'm not going to have to rummage through my pockets. I don't know, Lord. I, I, I don't want to stand before the Lord with empty pockets. Maybe there's one talent. Maybe I made another one through the grace of Jesus Christ. But for us to be indifferent, for us to say, well, I'm living life and, you know, I was working and I couldn't do this. I'm raising my family. I couldn't do that. No, that. Again, all of this is driven by our heart and our love for Christ. If there's no love for Christ, if you don't have a heart for Christ, if your heart's not broken for Christ, if, 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 if you don't desire him, then guess what? The good works aren't going to be there. Yeah. Listen, the Apostle Paul says this. Everybody loves Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For grace we have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Everybody says, praise the Lord! I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. I echo that. But do you know that dialogue doesn't end there, right? You know there's a verse 10. And that verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And he tells us what we're created for. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had 
foreordained. He had determined beforehand that we should walk in them. We should perpetuate in good works. What is the ministry of the believer? We are to show forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. That's what Peter says. He says, you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a chosen people. And I'm going to tell you what you're created for. You're created to show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, how do you proclaim that? If you walk in the works that God had foreordained, what are those works? Advancing the kingdom of God. And that every time we do a good work, we don't take that glory. We don't go home and say, hey, another good work for the kingdom today. What do we do? We give God the glory. God, may you get all the glory. Yet not I, as we sang, but Christ in me. How critical. Listen, our view of our faith and if we're doing these things, there is an excitement. Yes, there is a hope. Yep, yep. The other day I was watching a documentary, and it was a very compelling documentary. Uh, it was about communist China and how they're influencing things in the Western world. Very compelling. And basically... Communist China believes that they will become the ruler of the world, that communism is going to conquer everything, and they are leading that thrust, and everything they are doing is geared toward that. That's, listen, that's a fact. I'm not talking about politics. It's just a fact. That's what they believe. And I, I haven't finished it yet. But I, I shut it off and I said to Barbara, I said, you know, this is pretty compelling. I said, but I don't fear it. Because the Bible tells me exactly how things are going to end. And the Bible tells me how this is going to come about. And so my hope and faith is in Christ. And let's say the worst thing ever happened. Let's say it did. Let's say persecution comes to America like persecution is in China and in North Korea and in Myanmar and in Iran and in all of the other Muslim nations. Let's say that persecution comes. Let's say that we're thrown in prison one day. Let's say that we are tortured for the sake of Jesus Christ. I don't know how each one of us will fare, least of all me. I don't know. But I do know this, that should they kill me, they cannot take Christ from me. And I know that my eternity is secure. 
And I know whether I'm sitting in my house, sitting in the air conditioning, or whether I'm sitting in a jail cell, that both times I am going to have a hope and a joy and an expectancy at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because I desire to see him face to face. This is what James is encouraging these believers. Persevere. Press on. Go forward. Because the coming of the Lord is right around the corner. Look what he says here. He gives the example in verse 7. He says, be patient. And he gives the example of the farmer. He says, hey, it's the farmer. Look at the farmer. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Think about the farmer. The farmer works diligently all year, and he works diligently for one thing, for one thing, a bountiful harvest. That's what he's working for. So he plants his field. He works in the cold. He works in the sun. He treats the soil. He plows. He provides nutrients. He does whatever. But through the entire year, everything is up to the providence of God. Can the farmer call down rain? No. Can the farmer call down good weather? No. Can the farmer say, this year I'm going to have a bountiful crop because of all the things I did? No. The farmer is dependent upon God. James is calling to them and said, you too, you too be like that farmer. You too work, labor, do what you must do. But the coming of the Lord is around the corner. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, You too, be patient. Persevere. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here the uh, James directs their attention. Why? Because when we're laboring, right? And this is true whether we're, we're laboring at work or, but especially true if we're laboring for the kingdom, right? How many of you here today say, hey, Pastor Mark, praise the Lord. I shared the, I shared the Lord with 35 people today, this week and 35 people got saved. And how many of you are going to say, oh, Pray, Pastor Mark, I shared the Lord with my unbelieving family, and guess what? They all repented and they got saved. No, no, we don't hear that, do we? What do we hear? Pray for my unbelieving mother. I've been sharing the gospel for her. She's been resisting. Pray for this one. Pray for that one. It's hard, and it's, it's laboring. It's, it's plowing the hard ground. It's getting rid of the rocks and, and cultivating the soil. And then we get an opportunity, and we drop a seed in there. And then we cover up that seed with soil, and we pray, and we pray, Father, bless that seed that has been sown there. May it produce fruit. And then we move on to the next one. But we're not seeing the rewards, are we? Are we seeing the rewards immediately? Every once in a while, we say, pray 
praise God. I say praise God, my son and my daughter-in-law, after years of laboring and laboring and removing the stones and, and do my son and my daughter-in-law got saved. Praise God. But Barbara and I will tell you that was many, many years of prayer. By the way, that means I'm probably going to die because I always prayed, Lord, don't let me leave this earth without knowing that my children are fully saved. Now all my children are saved, so he doesn't need me anymore. But it's labor. It's intense labor. This is the point. This is the encouragement to James. Keep on laboring. Keep on working. Don't quit. Don't get tired because the coming of the Lord is certain listen how certain how certain is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ I'll tell you how certain it was Christ testified to this John 14 verse 2 in my father's house are many dwelling places if it were not so I would have told you so for I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Praise God. I go to prepare a place. Why? So that you will be in my presence. I know the King James may say, in my father's house are many mansions. The real word is dwelling places. So it's not an individual mansion, it's a massive house. A massive house, one house, with many dwelling places. Christ confirms it. The angels confirmed it. Did you know that? Acts chapter 1, verse 11. As Christ ascends, it says this, They also said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Boy, Jesus went up. Jesus is going to come down. He's going to come back. He's going to come back the same way. The Apostle Paul talks about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet blessed. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which shall remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord in the air. It's certain. Don't lose heart, believer. This is certain. Christ is coming. In verse 8, he says, You to be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming day of the Lord. It's a very interesting word, that word strengthen. That word strengthen means to, to fix in place, fix it in place, give support, firmly establish. That's what it means. Strengthen your heart, firmly establish. This is not a day for the weak. This is a day for the strong. This is a day for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a day for the church to fix themselves upon Christ. 
upon Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground. All the other ground we've talked about, the riches, the politics, the culture, all the other ground is sinking sand. We must place our faith upon Christ and upon this solid ground. So we see certain things in this text today. We saw first that we're not to put our confidence in anything else. We're not to put our confidence in riches. We're not to put our confidence in our careers. We're not to put our confidence in ourselves. We're to put our, our confidence strictly and solely upon the Lord. We're not to be consumed with or hoarding wealth or hoarding riches or whatever it is we hoard. But our heart's attention has to be uniformly devoted to Christ. Verse 7, James encouraged those believers, persevere, labor on. And the, and the message to the church today, listen, if you are in Christ today, the message is this, labor on. Don't stop. Press on. Who's that person you're witnessing to that you have just witnessed to, to your blue in the face? You know what? Press on. Who are those unsafe friends and those unsaved loved ones that you have been praying for for many years, perhaps decades now? Pray on. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it falling apart or is it faltering? Or are you growing in Christ? Labor on until the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, he tells us, fix our hearts. I love that term. I love that term. Fix our hearts on Christ. Is your heart fixed on Christ? Listen, I want to issue a challenge to you. And the challenge is simply this. Is your heart fixed on Christ? Or is Christ just another addition to a pretty good, awesome life? Which one is Christ to you? If your heart is fixed on Christ, I'll tell you what, you wake up in the morning and it's Christ. And in the middle of the day, it's Christ. And at the dinner time, it's Christ. And at the end of the day, it's Christ. If Christ is a nice little addition to an already pretty good moral, ethical life, and you're just sailing along, then I'll tell you how your life looks. You see, in the morning, it's get up and go. And there may be a prayer there. And at mealtime, they may be, thank you, Lord, for this food and all the things that you give us. But Christ will fit neatly somewhere among all the other different things you've got going on. And then when crisis comes, oh, God, help me. And you reach for that Christ. Deliver me, heal me, do this, do that. 
And once it's done, you put them back on that shelf. Who's Christ to you? Seriously, I, I don't mean to, 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 to be lighthearted with this. This is a serious question. Because I'll tell you what Christ says. Christ says, no one is worthy of me who loves father, mother, sister, brother, husband, or wife more than me. That's a tall order. Those are the people you love the most. You know, Moses wrote down the commandment of God, which was the same thing. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other God but me. Jesus echoed something very similar too, right? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. By the way, that's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So now I ask you again. Who is Christ to you? Listen, that's the question that every human being ever born into this world must answer. Every human being. It's imperative. It's critical that you've answered that question the right way. And if you have not, if the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart and you say, yeah, I, I've been superficial in my relationship with Jesus Christ, do you know that you have this very moment to make your heart right with Christ? Whatever is thundering in your head, whatever doubts that the enemy is whispering into your brain right at this very moment, I want to tell you it's a lie from the pit of hell, and I want to tell you put your faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You cry out to God and you say, have mercy on me, O God. I'm a sinner. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins and place all of your faith and all of your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and ask the Father, have mercy on me, Father, that I might be born again and by faith, trust Christ. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's how simple it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Flee to Christ. And answer that question once and for all. And come to Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.